We're going to continue in the book of Mark. We're on Mark chapter 12. I'll let you turn there. The title of our sermon this morning is Rejected Stone or Chief Cornerstone, A Cautionary Tale. Uh, we love stories, don't we? I love a good story. Love to read. Big reader. Like movies, too. Um, but I'm the kind of guy that after reading a book or seeing a movie, I have to pick it apart. Talk about the symbolism and the message and, and where we see ourselves and the characters and what was the author or director trying to tell us and do I agree with his point of view and makes it hard to go out on a date with me to a, to a movie. <laughs> Can't we just watch a show? And yet... Our pastor has taught us all these years that you can't just go through life on autopilot. The, the world is sending us messages and we need to filter those messages through the lens of Scripture. Does this measure up with God's worldview? And we've been talking about unmet expectations the last month. And we get these expectations often because our expectations are different than God's. And we get disappointed when our expectations aren't met. In other words, we're writing a story, but so is God. And our little story is engulfed in His grand story. And when the plot turns in His story, and I'm looking at my story, and I didn't have that turn of events. We're tempted to be discouraged or angry or to kick against the goads, as the Bible says, to try to fight against the sovereignty of God and make the story work out the way I want it to work out. And Jesus tells us there's another way. In fact, we sang about it this morning. I surrender. Not a, fine, I surrender. You win. You're more powerful. It's, it's a trusting, loving, accepting, I surrender. I want to swim with your current, God, not, not against it. And so this morning we're going to see our Lord tell a story. He loved to tell stories. Master storyteller. In fact, he is writing the grand story of life. Every story has a context, characters, Crisis. It's got to be a crisis. Got to be drama. It's a boring story if nothing ever happened. As a wise fish once said, not much fun for little Nemo. Right? If nothing ever happens to him. A climax, a conclusion, and then there's some lesson to be drawn at the end. And in this case, it's a it's a caution. The lesson's a caution. We're going to see others fail so we don't have to fail. And we're going to see the consequences of failure so we won't have to suffer those consequences. So it's a cautionary tale for us. You know, God's story has a context in the beginning. In the beginning. Do you know any other story that starts like that? There was nothing and then there was something. Every other story you've ever read starts with 
once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away or in a kingdom long ago. And yet God's story starts at the very beginning. Only He could start a story that way. In the beginning, God, there's the main character right away. If you had any doubts about who this story is about, it's about God. The Bible's not about us, it's about God. We're extras. And yet, more than extras, because we're created in God's image, and we're important, have dignity and value. And there's a crisis. These people God created in His image to love Him, adore Him, and worship Him are tempted to disobey and try to write their own stories. And they fall for it. You fall for it, I fall for it, we fall for it. And there's separation between God and man. And so the rest of the story is about redeeming, fixing the crisis, right? Right? All stories have a problem and you've got to get a solution by the end. Or you're not happy, there's no satisfaction, you can't walk away from the story until there's some kind of resolved conflict. Of course, we like the pattern to happen in a 23-minute sitcom. <laughs> problem, solution, credits. But life isn't like that, is it? Our problems don't get solved quite that easily. And so we find ourselves in the middle of this grand story. Secularists hate the idea of a grand story. They love the idea that we're all writing our own story and all of our stories have significance. Except the significance has to come from you. If you believe in your story enough, then it has significance. And yet it's a false significance, right? It's a false significance. Ultimately, without God... What we do in the morning, what we accomplish with our lives is vanity, vanity, all is vanity, Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes. Without God, our story is meaningless. But in God and with Him as our foundation, our stories matter, our lives matter. Somehow, in ways we don't understand, human action and God's sovereignty works together hand in glove. You can try to unravel it and figure out where his sovereignty ends and your actions begin, but don't try. <laughs> it's a puzzle man's never been able to figure out. Accept it as biblical truth. We're like fishes swimming in a fishbowl year after year. I think that's an old song. And we think we're sovereign. We swim where we want to swim and I'll go behind this plant and I'll swim over here and and yet, the rest of us stand back and say, what a foolish fish. You can only swim as far as the tank allows you. And if somebody doesn't feed you and clean your tank, you're not going to last very long. You can't leave the bowl because you're not designed to, to live outside of water. And in fact, if you weren't created in the first place, there'd be no you making decisions about where you want to swim, where you want to live, what you want to do with life. I love the song Jairus introduced us to this morning. Every breath that we breathe is from God. So we are living this little story, but in the middle of a grand story. 
the Pharisees, chief priests, scribes, and elders were living out a story. And they forgot that their story was encapsulated in a grand story. How sad and tragic because they knew the story better than anybody else. They were the storyteller. They taught the story. And yet, tragically, they were playing out the role of the antagonist. They were the villain and didn't even realize it. And yet the Scripture prophesied that they would be the villain. Such an interesting thing to consider. Did the Pharisees, chief priests, scribes, and elders have freedom of will? Did they know what they were doing? Were they making conscious decisions that were their decisions? And are they held accountable for their choices? Yes. And yet, they were fulfilling prophecy. They were walking right in the path that God had said they would. Boggles the mind and brings me to my knees in awe of this, this God who knows all. Yes, my actions have purpose and meaning, but I cannot thwart the plans of the Almighty. By the time we get to the end of the sermon, you'll be left with a choice. You'll be left with a choice. Do I humbly and happily accept that I'm part of God's story, or will I continue to try to write my own script? Beloved, when your script matches God's script, it's a beautiful thing. Harmony, peace that passes all understanding. But when you're trying to write a story that's diametrically opposed to God's story, frustration, unhappiness, and anger with God ensues. And worst of all, it can lead to unbelief. Hardening your heart against the Almighty So let's jump into the story. First, the context, the setting. Mark 12, 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Well, we've got a context within a context. Let's start with the story we're reading. Jesus is in the temple. He's cleansed the temple. He came into the city of Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. They shouted, Hosanna in the highest. This is Messiah. This is our king. He's going to topple the Roman government. He's going to make everything right. Jesus had a different agenda. He comes into the heart of Israel, the temple, and he says, this heart is diseased. And he cleanses the temple. He tells the religious leaders, you failed. You have failed, and he sends them out. And for almost a week, things are as they should be. God is in his holy temple, and he's teaching truth. And last week we saw that the Pharisees and chief priests, scribes, and elders returned to trap him. Good luck with trying to trap God. 
I mean, we know he's God. They don't know he's God. And they come with a trap and they say, by what authority do you do these things? So here's the trap. If he says, God's given me this authority, then he's equating himself with God. Only God has the right to come in and cleanse his temple and kick out the religious leaders because God had ordained this whole system this whole sacrificial system of atonement and put certain leaders in charge of the temple. The only one who had a right to do what Jesus did were those in the line of priests, and yet Jesus is our high priest. So if he says, God gave me the authority, then they would call him a blasphemer and they would stone him. If he said, I do this on my own authority then they've got him nailed there. Nobody has that kind of authority to come into the temple and do what he did on his own. And so they thought he had him trapped, and he says, I'll answer your question, first you answer mine. The baptism of John, from God or from man? It was really the same question they gave him, he just turned it back on him, a little judo, little verbal judo. Speaking of authority... John's baptism, where's the authority from that, God or man? And they said, man, if we say from God, he's going to say, then why don't you believe John? Because John pointed to Jesus and said, he's the one, there's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. I must decrease, he must increase. The people loved John, and John's message was Jesus was the Messiah. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But the religious leaders said to themselves, if we say it's from man, people are going to be upset with us. Either way, we lose our authority. If we say John was right, then Jesus has all the authority. If we say John was wrong, they're going to replace us. So they say the one thing that a know-it-all hates to say. I don't know. And so Jesus says, then I will not answer your question either, and begins to tell the story. So now we're in context. What a tense conflict that must have been. Could have cut the tension with a knife, and he just goes right into one of his parables. And everybody would understand this context. A landowner, wealthy landowner, a venture capitalist, too old to work the land himself, buys some land and hires others to cultivate the land, to plant a vineyard. And he uses his own capital and his own manpower to set up this vineyard such that these stewards had every reason to succeed. Every reason to succeed. The vineyard owner had every reasonable expectation that they should produce a good crop. It takes about five years. I was reading for a grape crop to produce grapes worthy for winemaking. And so he went away on a journey, it says. He doesn't need to be around for the growing process. The people he hired were trained to do what they were supposed to do. 
So he would return eventually, and they would share in the profit. And often the workers would receive more than the owner because they did the labor. Maybe a 60-40 split. And so everyone listening to the story would understand this situation. Very common in their day. So they're, they're now situated in the middle of the story. Okay, we get this. This is the world we live in. What happens next? Well, it turns out that Jesus was borrowing this story from Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. If you want to turn to Isaiah 5 or just look at the big screen. the scribes and chief priests and elders and Pharisees, the teachers of Israel, would recognize this language immediately. This is Isaiah chapter 5. You have to understand, these people know their Bible much better than, than we do. They were expected to, to have it memorized. The scribes had to copy the Scriptures word perfect. Not just word for word, letter for letter. They had an elaborate system for counting when they finished copying a page of Scripture to make sure that it was complete. It was God's Word. They were not allowed to make even the slightest error. They knew the Scriptures. Immediately they would recognize Jesus is talking about Isaiah 5. Let me read it. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. This is Isaiah writing a poem or a song. He was a very gifted and talented man from a wealthy family of influence. He had access to the leaders of Israel. He was well taught in the best schools. Bible translators tell us that Isaiah is second only to Job as the hardest book to translate. Job, because it's so old and, and the words um, are very, very ancient. But Isaiah, because he uses the most diverse vocabulary. The guy was a wordsmith. He had a huge range of vocabulary and could use that to write poetically. And so he says, let me write a poem, a song. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed the stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. We've been talking about unmet expectations. Let's talk today about God's unmet expectations. Because His expectations are reasonable. Amen? Amen? Amen. We get all in a fit when our expectations aren't met. And we're human and not perfect like God. So if we get upset when our expectations aren't met... How much more than should God be upset when his expectations aren't met? He saved the people, Israel, and sanctified them unto himself and gave them the law of Moses and gave them leaders and prophets and teachers. 
He walked them through the wilderness for 40 years, teaching them a life of obedience. Brought them into a land, a promised land, where there were already homes. There were already cisterns dug out of rock to collect water. There were already fertile fields. They didn't have to do anything for themselves. The entire situation was set up in their favor for Israel to be able to produce the good crop for which they were intended. A crop of righteousness. A crop of worship to the one and only true God. The kind of life that would draw the pagan nations to the promised land, wanting and searching and yearning for what the Israelites had. The kind of life that adorns the gospel and brings people to worship of the true and living God. That was Israel's purpose, to glorify God. Just like your purpose and my purpose, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The Lord even removed all of Israel's enemies from the land and Israel was able to just jump right into their houses and into their fields and enjoy a land flowing with milk and honey. At the height of Israel's kingdom, King Solomon reigned during a time of peace and they built an amazing temple to the Lord and God's glory filled the temple. And people did come from all nations to see this magnificent temple, but more importantly, to worship at the feet of the one and only true God. And if that's the way the story ended, we could say amen. And yet, Israel squandered its crop. Squandered its crop. Solomon began to marry daughters of foreign nations in order to ensure that enemies would not attack And these daughters insisted on worshiping their pagan gods. And Solomon, this man of great wisdom, foolishly decides, I better keep my wife happy because a happy wife (laughs) means a happy dad who won't come in and attack our nation. Furthermore, we got to keep the people busy with building projects. So we'll just keep building temples and keep the people busy and keep money in their pockets and keep our foreign nations happy and keep my wives happy. Well, that guy had a lot of plates spinning. (laughs) And um, God brought all the plates tumbling down. Brought them all crashing down. And once you get past the Solomonic reign, it's just prophet after prophet after prophet preaching, repent, judgment is at hand. Repent, judgment is at hand. Look at verse 7 from Isaiah 5. It won't be on the screen. Actually, let me keep reading from verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Judge between me and my vineyard. Who's me? God. Who's his vineyard? The people of Israel. Judge between me and the people of Israel. The leaders, specifically. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why? 
When I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, its protection, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain. No rain on it. Thank you, Ross Amato. Thank you, God, for sovereignly aligning our messages like he does. I love it when he does that. I did not talk to Ross this morning about his message. I certainly didn't bring the drought. (laughs) For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Studying this passage in the original text, Isaiah, just a master wordsmith. Nathan's taking Hebrew right now. It's like killing him. The the words are backwards. There's no vowels. Lots of strange sounds. Lots of... (sighs) It was a dusty place they lived in. And yet there's this beautiful contrast, Isaiah... Inspired by the Holy Spirit, when he says, I look for justice and only bloodshed in the Hebrew, I look for mishpat. All I saw was mishpat. Mishpat, mishpat. Beautiful play on words. That sound you make when you're trying to clear your throat of something annoying. Mishpat. I looked for righteousness, and I only heard cries of distress. He was looking for a place where finally people could live, and there would be righteousness and justice. People got a fair shake, and instead, just a cry of distress from his people. I looked for los daka. All I got was zayaka. Another play on words. Beautiful stuff. Keep at it, Nathan. God will uncover for you nuggets of gold. Let's bring this into English. God has planted a vineyard in our souls. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's redeemed us. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And He looks for a crop of gratitude. And all he gets is attitude. He's looking for selflessness. All he sees is selfishness. Let's look at the characters in the story. Mark 12, 2, back to Mark. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. 
and so with many others, beating some and killing others. At this point, his hearers would be incensed, enraged, perplexed even. Why does he keep sending slaves? How would you like to be the next slave? Got a mission for you. I want you to go have a word with these folks watching over my vineyard. They may beat you and kill you. Who does that sound like to you in the history of Israel? The prophets. The prophets. Here's our cast of characters. We already know the vineyard owner is God and the vineyard is Israel. The vine growers are the leaders of Israel. They're supposed to tend to the plants, to produce a good crop, to preach righteousness, to lead the people in the paths of righteousness. So the slaves were the prophets, the slaves going to check on the vineyard. The prophets came to let these people know that God was not pleased with how they were tending his vineyard. Brothers and sisters, there's prophets in your life, not the kind that predict the future. It's a different kind of prophecy, but to prophesy in the Bible also means to preach. You have pastors. You have the Word of God. You have the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, preaching to your heart. You have brothers and sisters in Christ who've come to you to tell you to turn, to help you see the speck in your eye. Don't treat the prophets of God the way Israel's leaders did. Have a humble heart and listen. Not every accusation that a person brings against you is true, but is your first reaction always to deny? Why not humbly consider? You know, there's probably a kernel of truth in every accusation you hear against you. Have some friends who can speak truth in your life and ask them, is this true about me? Go ahead, tell me. I won't beat you or hit you over the head or kill you and throw you out of my house. The history of Israel is a rich and tragic tale of persecution of God's prophets. Here's a list for you of just some. Elijah, we know he was hunted down by Ahaz and Jezebel. Jeremiah thrown in a pit, which was like a prison. Just a deep hole he couldn't get out of. Actually, you read through Jeremiah and Lamentations and you, you're, you get so depressed. You just can't read anymore. Of it. It's the beauty when you get to that verse in Jeremiah where you just can't take any more depressing news and he says, but great is thy faithfulness. His mercies are new each morning. 
Ezekiel and Zechariah were rejected social outcasts. Micah, beaten in the face. Amos had to flee for his life. Isaiah, sawed in half in a hollow log. We read about that in the book of Hebrews. Other historical sources tell us that person named in the Hebrews' hall of faith was indeed Isaiah. And of course, we know what happened to John the Baptist, the final prophet before Jesus came, imprisoned and beheaded. So, we've got openings for a prophet. We're taking applications after church. Perhaps you've had to be a prophet. You were appointed the one who had to go speak truth in a situation where nobody else wanted to go. If you know your errand is from God and you fear God and not man and you speak truth and love with a humble heart knowing you deserve judgment too and you get God's mercy and grace, you can go and you can be a prophet. Prophets were so terrible that when we get to Matthew 23, we're in Matthew now. You can just look at the board. You don't have to turn there. Matthew 23, a whole chapter devoted to Jesus unleashing his fury on the Pharisees. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. Over and over. Woe means curse. God's curse on you. Here is God himself in human flesh, the second person of the Trinity, pronouncing a curse on the Pharisees, on the religious leaders of Israel. That kind of language is frightening. As we read in Hebrews, it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. The Pharisees thought God would come as Messiah and pronounce curses and woes on the unrighteous, on the prostitutes, on the sinners, on the tax collectors, and on the Romans. And instead, he comes into the heart of Israel and saves his greatest, most scathing rebukes for the religious leaders. May that not be us, beloved. The church, the professing believers. Is that terrible frightening passage on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Listen to one of the curses here on Israel's leaders. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say... If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. As they were about to kill the prophet. As they were plotting to destroy Jesus. Have you ever said that to yourself when, when you were little and you read Genesis 3, Adam and Eve? Well, if it was me, I wouldn't have eaten from the tree and yet you eat from the tree every day. Consequently, you bear witness against yourself. The fact that you know 
that your fathers should not have done those things to the prophets, you are bearing witness against yourself. You know what is right and wrong, and you yourselves persecute the prophets of your day. Here I am, the prophet, Jesus said, and you are seeking to destroy me. So fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? A prophecy now from Jesus. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Who's he talking about? Who's Jesus going to send? The apostles. And even our missionaries today sent to the far corners of the world and they're persecuted and killed and tortured. Or maybe it's just the humble pastor who gets run out of town. Oh, it happens. It happens. That upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. That's a fascinating story we don't have time for. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When he says, your house is being left to you desolate, certainly a prophetic judgment pointing to A.D. 70, when Rome would finally destroy and ransack Jerusalem and go from town to town slaughtering Jews left and right and then burn the temple to the ground and then remove it and dismantle it stone by stone and even today the temple mount empty. And the last 2,000 years of history, Jewish history, has been filled with blood and judgment. A desolate house. And yet in the midst of it all they thrive and prosper still because God has made indelible promises to his people Israel. So we have a crisis brewing in the story Jesus is telling, and the crowd is now tired of hearing slave after slave sent. They were ready after the first slave for the vineyard owner to come in and bring judgment. And you can imagine that at some point they are now saying, this story is ridiculous. Who would just keep sending slaves to get killed? I mean, honestly, that's so weak to give people second chances and third chances and fourth chances. We can't respect this vineyard owner. He's weak. And so Jesus says, he had one more to send, the climax. Here we go. Here comes the warrior. Here comes 
Charles Bronson. <laughs> Clint Eastwood. It's Dirty Harry coming in to do justice. And they're, they're ready because that's where the story is going, right? It should go there. And instead, he says, A beloved son, he sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. And the crowd, including the religious leaders, are saying, Don't send your son! What are you, crazy? What are you, fool? Don't do that. We know what's going to happen to him. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Let's get this guy out of the way. Then we'll have all the power. The old guy's got to die sooner or later and then he won't have a son and we'll own the vineyard. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Oh, Jesus, master storyteller's got him right on the line. Reeled him right in. They walked right into it. And he says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And if we look at Matthew's account of this story, of this very same parable, it records that the crowd shouted out the answer. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? What a great question, Jesus. And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And we'll rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Yeah, that's what he's going to do. Those wretched wretches. Those wretches to a wretched end. This Hebrew language loves to repeat a word to bring emphasis. We don't repeat words in our language. In fact, your English teacher would cross out those words and hand you a thesaurus. So you need a different word. You already use that word. Well, this was a Hebrew way of making a point. And when they really wanted to make a point, they said it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Bring those wretches to a wretched end and then rent out the vineyard to other vine growers. And Jesus has got to be saying, you're absolutely right. You nailed it. He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And then the, the plot twist. Have you not even read the scripture? That's probably one of the last things you want to say to a scribe, a priest, an elder, a Pharisee, a Sadducee. Do you even know the scriptures? That's a slap in the face right there public slap in the face. Don't you know the scriptures? Aren't you the teachers of Israel? Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3. When Jesus said you need to be born again and Nicodemus said, well, how, uh, how does that work? And he says, you're the teacher of Israel? You don't know about being born again? You're the teachers of Israel? Don't you know Psalm 118? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Don't you know the scriptures are talking about me? I'm the stone that the Lord God Almighty has sent. 
to be the foundation upon which all other truth is built, upon which life must be built. The chief cornerstone, that perfect rock that builders would look for, perfectly square, no flaws, no structural defects, to set it just right, at just the right angle. Because all other stones are going to be placed against that chief cornerstone, and if you get the first one wrong, all the rest will be wrong. Jesus, the chief cornerstone. If you don't start writing your story with Jesus as the hero, then you've got the wrong story. And yet the Scriptures prophesied that He would be rejected. By whom? By the very people God sent Jesus to. What a terrible revelation for the religious leaders. They must have been a terrible aha moment. We've walked right into it. No, it can't, it can't be. This can't be. But they knew the Scriptures. They knew how the plot would unfold. God would send His beloved and He'd be rejected by the leaders of Israel. They were the leaders of Israel. Again, trapped. If they admit that this is true, then they lose their position. And they admit that they are under God's judgment. And so they want to reject Jesus as the chief cornerstone. No, it can't be Him. This can't be happening. And they're stuck between these two options. Either accept truth or accept a lie. And yet there's a third option, beloved. There's always a third option. Humbly repent and accept the truth. It's really the second option, which is accept the truth. But they didn't want to accept the truth and then live out the consequences of that truth. And so they couldn't accept the truth. They couldn't accept that they would lose their power. They couldn't accept that they had been leading God's people astray all this time. You know, sadly, they didn't really want Rome overthrown. They had worked out a really nice system for themselves. As is the case whenever there's any kind of despotic reign in a nation, people scramble like cockroaches to find their little piece of pie. Often when America comes into a country bringing you know, freedom and democracy, and we wonder why people don't seem to want that, well, the people at the bottom want it. There's lots of people who don't because they've carved out their niche and they don't want us to upset the apple cart. So Jesus has rejected the leaders and he's going to give the vineyard to others. To the apostles. And they're going to be persecuted just like all the other prophets. 
So the conclusion then, it's beautiful. Jesus starts telling a story, and partway through the story, the listeners realize they are the story. And he leaves them to write the conclusion. How will it end? Choose your own adventure. You write the ending. Do you trip over the chief cornerstone as a stumbling block, or do you build your house on the rock? What about you, beloved? Is Jesus your stumbling block or your chief cornerstone? Are you rejecting Jesus because you want to write your own story and you don't want it to turn out the way his is turning out. I beseech you this morning to choose Jesus, to surrender all. If you haven't in a saving way, then this morning... Stop tripping over Jesus. You realize you're part of a story that's bigger than your own. And Jesus is going to get his way. And there's only room for one Lord in this story. One hero. And it's, it's Jesus. And if you'll put your faith in him, You'll have that peace that passes all understanding. And he's so much a better Lord than we are. So much a better Lord, better hero. Then our own little stories that are part of his great story have meaning and substance. And it's okay that in small ways, God might ask you to be the hero of a smaller story. To help someone, to bring the gospel to someone. To meet the needs of a little girl who needs a dress made out of a pillowcase. You can, you can be a small hero, but you can't be the main hero. You can write a short story in the middle of the large story, but you can't be the author that writes the big story. Oh, beloved, how foolish we are when we try to manipulate our world to make things turn out the way we want them to turn out. God loves you too much to allow you to get your own way. So if you're in Christ today but find yourself tripping over Jesus and this message hits you like a ton of bricks, don't be mad, don't be angry, don't shake your fist at God. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good, that his burden isn't heavy, his yoke is easy. He's done the hard work for us on the cross. He can be trusted. Move in harmony with him and stop fighting against him. Get on board the train instead of being drugged behind. When you see folks in Christ who have the peace that passes all understanding, Ask them where they found that peace. And they'll answer like Paul answered. I have learned that in times of 
abundance and in times of want, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? Amen. Amen. I can accept the lot God's given me for my life. I can do my best in whatever circumstances He's ordained for me. I can trust Him. Because in my Father's house, there are many rooms, and there's one prepared for me. So let me pray for you, and we'll go home and put Jesus back into the chief cornerstone of our house and our life. Father God, thank you for this story originally intended to reveal the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of Israel and to pronounce judgment on them. And for us today, a cautionary tale, a warning not to harden our hearts against Almighty God. Lord, you're writing the story and we only see a portion. Forgive us when we want to write the next chapter. Teach us how to walk in your ways and to walk in the good works you've prepared for us. Show us how to align our will to yours so we could say with Jesus, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we lift up our pastor to you, who I'm sure is living a story that's turning out differently than he thought, and yet so beautifully has demonstrated to us how to accept the story and use it for the glory of God, Lord. And so whatever circumstances we find ourselves in this morning, Lord, may we not complain, but say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen.